Anybody want to say anything funny before we start this one? Ass. <laughs> I said nobody wants to say anything funny before we start this one. It's a good word, though. I'm not saying anything. Oh, sorry, arc. That's what I meant to say. Oh, nice. Funnily enough, though, I was watching Robots of Death for the New to Who podcast. New to Who? <laughs> New to Who podcast. Which I they asked me to go on because they've they've lost one of their um there were three guys and they used to get together and do it in person but one of them's dropped out so they're going to spend a year because they're a monthly podcast doing an episode with a guest host okay. each month so they asked me if I'd do one so we did Robots of Death. How desperate. Well, you see, when I said somebody say something funny, Simon's decided he up. wants to get in on the app. <laughs> yeah, I can't do on demand. Something has to come along. Okay, it's we're, like waiting. Pie we're waiting. waiting. On the table. We're waiting. <laughs> so I miss that. Is it, is it new to who? New to who? Oh, the idea right. is that they take a classic series a story and talk about it for people who've only ever seen the new series who might want to go back and sample classic who. Okay, good one. It's Neil Mum's brother. Anyway, the point I was coming to, but anyway, that's coming out soon, so anybody listening, assuming that I put this on, should go out and listen to the latest edition of New to Who once it becomes the latest edition, rather than the edition that hasn't come out yet. So we've got an infestation of owls. <clears throat> I, I just want to Photoshop together a Star Wars figure packet, fake packet with New to Who as the name. <laughs> oh my it's God. Like, it's like an X-Wing pilot. New to Who. <laughs> well, it's a cantina animal. Is it anyway. New to so, like, yeah, new to. They've yeah. been spayed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Ooh, I owls is... with Ooh. no ability to reproduce. Yeah. I, I they're all it's... they're all twits and no twoos. They're all yes. twit to ooh. <laughs> are they? This is getting worse. Are they barren owls? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. Simon's going to need sedative for this one. <laughs> Put it this way, the <laughs> long-eared owls, the long-eared owls are now little-eared owls. Yeah. <clears throat> the point I was coming to is, I was watching Robots of Death, and like five minutes into the first episode, somebody says, damn, which today you wouldn't bat an eyelid at, but back then, that was basically <clears throat> the equivalent of arse and bloody in the new series mm. so I'm just predicting that in 40 years time they'll be bastarding and shitting at each other they're already bastarding in Star Wars aren't they yeah, yeah that's true there's very little shitting that. there's very yeah. little shitting though so far I think we had one shit in Rogue One did they're we? effing and blinding in Star Trek aren't they or well, they did in one oh, yeah, yeah. Star Trek's good oh, yeah but it's good Star the timing's Trek's, right isn't it Star Trek's like, getting good, good. swearing I, re- I, I reversed my original opinion of Star Trek after the first... Well, the first two episodes were a bit flat, but mm. it's starting to... It's ridiculous, but it's getting yeah. good. Jason Isaacs does good in agony acting. Absolutely. Jason Isaacs is a great actor. He's very good. Am I right in thinking he's the one from Toast? In, you are, in, in you are incorrect DJ. that Jason Isaacs is in Toast, but okay. the, the Clem Fandango from yeah. Toast is in um, Star Trek. But he plays the um, what spoilers? <gasps> oh no! He, he plays, plays a character one, of, one of the crewmen who has a relationship with the main character. Uh-huh. It was Jason Isaacs in Skeletons as well? Oh, I now know who you're talking about. Yeah, okay, getting the names wrong. So Clem Fandango is in Star Trek. Yes, that's awesome. 
I'll just edit that bit so it makes it sound like you're less stupid than you are. <laughs> Don't, isn't that just blank space? <laughs> yeah, through, basically. Through. We'll, be t- we'll be talking, there's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the worst podcast in the world sitting now. I only do faces, not names. And your belly. Yeah, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, to, to everybody listening, Lee is an excellent mime. <laughs> hearing a creak that's yeah. his face yeah it's extraordinary it's extraordinary his faces are extraordinary his Matt, voice is just interminable but Matt can only is... say this because he's never seen Lee doing oh yeah sorry I was joking Lee's a terrible mind no. <laughs> I spent an entire afternoon once with a video camera on Clude really did, yeah as I was yeah, yeah. oh as, as I was learning how to do it, really. I'd imagine you ended up a bit like Jason Isaacs in Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> Sounds like I probably did. Yeah. Oh, Lee, such a good mime. Even your audiences are silent. <laughs> hey! <laughs> what's going on? I don't know. Well, well finally, finally, we've got something cares? funny. Yeah. What's Klingon for bastard? I can't. <clears throat> shuck, oh, shuck. Cares. Oh, it's shuck talk. Shuck talk. Is it? Yeah. I know. Shuck talk. Sounds Blimey. like it could That's be. a new Star Wars figure. We'll go with that. <laughs> You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast. And for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Matt. Um, oh, you wanted to talk, Simon, about Chloe. Coco? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I thought... Okay, Coco. Coco, the new Pixar movie. Oh, okay, is that what it is? Yeah, I finally went to the cinema and saw a new film, which was really good, apart from Star Wars films. Yeah, I was going to say, you've only just been to see Star Wars twice. I know. <laughs> do you not go to the pictures very often? Not as often as I'd like to, no. Well... Anyway, yeah. Why did anyway. you look at me when you said that? As what? if I don't take you to the pictures enough or something. I didn't even look at you, did I? You did look at me. Did I? He well, looked I at you as if to say, you go you. to the pictures even less. <laughs> you never take me to the pictures, Lee. Carry on, wife. Tell us about Coco. Is it any good? Well, I think it's the best Pixar movie I've seen, certainly since Inside Out. Mm. Ooh, really? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, my initial reaction to it when I saw that it was coming out was... There's another film called Book of Life, which I'm trying to think, is that Guillermo del Toro? Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's the same subject matter of the Day of the Dead mm-hmm. and going yeah. into the afterlife and all that sort of thing. So you see people walking around with... The... But this one's for the smaller kids. No, no. Book of Life is another children's movie, which they love. But um, it just it's just a really stunning movie. The way it's, as you expect from Pixar, everything is frame perfect. Mm. But it's vivid and the writing is perfect. I mean, I just think it's perfection. Um, did you cry? I, I did. Um, I did do one of those just <laughs> breaths <laughs> at one point. But but but, but then maybe that I found it so moving because I mean, it, for anyone who has lost anyone, then it is quite a big thing. And the big thing for me was that uh, my daughter, who uh, my eldest daughter, who goes to a um, like a special needs unit um has just recently lost one of our friends there so really yeah yeah so the timing was something quite you know poignant i was gonna make a poor joke about lee then but i shall (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so before before she saw it i was a little bit dubious about as to whether it'd be too 
you know, close to the knuckle mm. for her. But as it was, I think sometimes it, these things are cathartic. Absolutely, and it was, and it was, and it and it talks about. I mean, I won't go into it too much, but it talks about you know memories and how important they are, and how you know you've got characters who who only exist in the afterlife all the time they're remembered in the real world. Mm. And I'm not going to go into that any more than that. But the music is wow. amazing Elvis is going to live well. forever in the afterlife, isn't it? Well, you know, this is the... Well, I won't go into that, but there is a very similar situation okay. in the film. But I couldn't recommend it enough. It is uh, an amazing movie, and as soon as they announce the Blu-rays come out, I'm just going to buy it. Is it a musical? So, sorry? Is it a musical? It's got the most amount of music of any Pixar movie, I'd say. But it is yeah. just... Beautiful music as well. I mean, that's one thing I think it has got over Book of Life. Book of Life is a little bit more... Uh, I don't know what the word is, really. Is Book of Life the ants to this one's Bugs Life? <laughs> oh, I don't know, because I think Ants is a better film than Bugs Life. Well, yeah, but Bugs... Uh, the point I was making is Bugs Life's more colourful and lively, whereas yeah. Ants is a bit darker and more... Maybe, yeah, yeah. Book of Life is a bit more stylistic. And... Mark Kermode said they'd be a good companion piece. Rather than yeah. one imitating the other, they're doing different things in a different definitely, way, but similar yeah. themes. And and you know what's really lovely that obviously the, the majority of actors are, I imagine Mexican, Spanish, mm. or mm. I'm not sure. And I, I obviously I didn't recognise any of the names, and that was just lovely because you didn't spend the whole Pixar movie thinking, oh, that's such and such, oh, yeah. that's such mm. and such. So imagine you were able to just immerse yourself in it, and it and it was like that. It was like travelling. I mean, it makes me want to go to Mexico now. Mm. So it makes you want to go Mexico. Go, or to, go Mexico. to Mexico. Okay. Yeah. No, going Mexico is uh, uh, <laughs> what? It's a joke. I mean, it's just a phrase that means killing yourself so you can find out what's in the afterlife and then coming back through the power of music. <laughs> that's what, no. that's oh, what really? to go Mexico is. Yeah. Is it really? No. <laughs> no I just made oh, it up. It sounds, it sounds lovely and poetic. Yeah. It just shows how much I bought into this, but. No, I just really, really loved it. And the colours, and I think you've got to see it in the cinema as well, at least at least once. Could, could well, colours usually could... look better on Blu-ray anyway, because they're not washed out by having so. a white cinema screen. Yeah. Well, watch in 2D then. Don't watch it in 3D. I watched The Post, this new Spielberg movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really on. good. Hang on, we need to get an 8 okay. out of 10 from oh, Simon, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not. Nice no, it's definitely a 10. Nice. Is it? Definitely a 10. That's really disappointing for you. <laughs> you must have come out of the pictures thinking, damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's not all my 8 out of 10. I needed I a solid so 8 out of 10 and I got a 10. Oh, how annoying. <laughs> so, okay, we're just going to do film reviews then for the so, rest the, of this episode. The, the, but go the, on, the, the post. post. So I watched it the other night. What's it's the, really good. No, tell me the premise first. So the, the idea is it's... It's oh, quite, it's the Washington Post, isn't it? It's the Washington, yes. Washington Post, and it's effectively a prequel to All the President's Men. Yeah, so it's yeah, about yeah. the Pentagon Papers, which were released earlier on in Nixon's premiership, that exposed the kind of the dodginess that went on with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, about how they sort of concealed things about Vietnam and the true motives of Vietnam and how they had doubts about Vietnam and how they just threw American troops into this situation, knowing that... They were, it was a hopeless thing. And these papers were released by someone at the CIA. And the, the film is about the New York Times and the Washington Post, but mainly the Washington Post, trying to decide whether they have the guts to print these because the White House is trying to stop, is trying to put an injunction on newspapers to stop them releasing it. So it's a battle between the White House and the press and the, the expression of the freedom of the press and the White House 
commenting on the press and talking, calling the press fake news and all of this. And it's filmed almost like a prequel. So if you've seen All the President's Men, this is filmed in a very similar way, using the same sort of film stock, the same kind of colours. Same techniques. The same techniques, the same accuracy of... So the famous thing about All the President's Men is it recreated the Washington Post officers to to the to the paperwork that's on people's desks. Wow. And the paperwork that was in people's bins, famously Alan Pecula, did everything accurately. Spielberg did the same, which means that the set in this film is identical to the to one, the one, one was present. So then, if you yeah. watch one before the other, I mean, it's just... And it's just re- really well done. So you are saying that you should watch this one first, then All the Presidents Men? I think you should watch this one first, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because what if you've seen All the Presidents Men? <laughs> well, if you're watching as a double film. Yeah, but yeah. this one ends with... with, And this isn't a spoiler. This one ends with the Watergate burglary. <sighs> so it kind of leads... That's a bit of a spoiler. Naturally in... <laughs> But it's got Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Meryl oh, Streep. Really? I was trying to think it was well, I won't be watching that then. Really? Oh, it's really well done. It is I really like good. neither of those actors. Do you not? No. Why? Really? I mean, Tom Hanks no. is really... I mean, he was a bit... Tom Hanks is like wallpaper to me. I I, I've had a friend who turned against, <laughs> turned against Tom Hanks and really? refused to watch any Tom Hanks film after... Pretty much after maybe Splash or... Big. Or Big. Or but the one with the but then you miss so many. I mean, Tom Hanks is really. Yeah. I mean, Bridges Spies, Seven I've Private Ryan. Even even stuff like the Terminals worth looking at. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'd watch it because it's Spielberg and his direction. Well, if you watch it because it's Spielberg, Tom Hanks is in most Spielberg movies, I know, which is why I haven't been watching a lot of those. But films. he's good in it. I you mean, he sure is, he's very like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, yeah, and I didn't like him in that either. I don't like Tom Hanks as an actor. Okay. It's and just what? One of those for crying out loud! What's wrong with Meryl Streep? She's the polar opposite of him in a way. She's over sincere in her acting, over method acting type of personality. Okay, you know, and she was in Mamma Mia, which doesn't help. But you know, but everything she she has that's been. That's in like a, judging Tom Hanks on Da Vinci Code. It's it's just I see bad choice. Well, all but, I can all I can say is in anymore. Yeah, but look, just, in this film, they have a lot of films. they have a lot of scenes together. And they work very convincingly as the parts that they're playing. And know, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, isn't very Tom Hanks like it. Because as I understand yeah. it, the character Meryl Streep's playing is quite. And um, I was listening to an interview with mm. Steven Spielberg about it. He was saying about it where she was known as quite an indecisive person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she's, for she's, her, the decision she makes is quite a. She's sort of accidentally inherited the Washington Post. So she's insecure and and it's being floated on the stock exchange so she's got bankers on one side she's got the old guard on the board trying to convince her to be more conservative about things and she's got tom hanks playing ben bradley who's the editor on the other saying we have to push these stories out we have to be brave and so she's sort of torn between the three the three mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. poles do you forget who they are do you forget they're tom hanks meryl streep um or are you sitting there forever thinking that's tom hanks, no meryl because streep? i watched these films with half my brain forgetting and half my brain aware of who they yeah, are. Yeah, but like, so do I you don't through myself. all the presidents, man, and think that's Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford? Um, no, I don't, I suppose. You do at the beginning, because mm. you're going, it's them. 
like in you know Tootsie, you think, oh, it's, it's, uh, but you know when you get into the film, you forget about it because it's so well done, it's so well written, and it's beautifully acted in places. Well, this well, is well written, yeah. well done, and beautifully acted. I'm sure it is. It's just that I've got and it blends. Have, and the fl- everything I've watched with Tom Hanks in it, apart well, even Apollo 13, which I liked, yeah. but I found him dull, and that was fine because you know he's playing an astronaut and he's hasn't got a lot to him anyway, and it's just interesting to watch him Would in the, space, but. This film, the trapping, it's the trappings, it's the style, it's the way, it's it's the dialogue as well. Okay. Really beds them down within the film. Yeah. And it's, it's about, and it's about, and it's about, and it's about Trump. Great film, bad. It's about Trump all the way through. Oh, it is it? Steven Spielberg's kind mm. of, mm. kind of riposte. Yeah, complete to oh. Trump. I Just as all the, all the president's <laughs> men is the same to Ford at the time. It's interesting actually you say about the actors and that sometimes you can't get past the fact that that's Tom Hanks and that's frustrating. Sometimes with Spielberg, as amazing as he is as a filmmaker, there are there's a period, there was a period of films where you thought, I'm watching a Spielberg movie. Yeah. You could almost see the yeah. mul- the motor going underneath the bonnet, can't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Late <laughs> 80s? Yeah, I would have said so. Spielberg's a strange because he's very good at pastiching other filmmakers mm. and mm. picking up other filmmaking stars. He so is now. Are... He never was. That's something he's started to do, really. Yeah. He went through a period so. in the 1980s. I mean, I hated E.T. when I first saw it because I just thought, oh, God, this is just Steven Spielberg doing the Steven Spielberg But thing. the colour purple wasn't exactly a no. classic. So there were... He's always he's sort had of... breakout ones in between. Yeah, yeah. Jurassic and... Park is absolute... And I'd imagine Ready Player One, which is the next, I think, the next Spielberg. That's yeah, going to yeah. be a Spielberg, Spielberg film. But then he's always in Bridge of Spies in this one. Mm. BFG yeah, is more Spielberg than this. Colour Purple was I the first time BFG he was Spielberg at all. Alternate so? thing. I, th- I found B- BFG, I, f- I keep forgetting it's a Spielberg movie. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But Minority Report, yeah. again, it's, it's just a fantastic film. I love that film, based mm. on a brilliant short story. But that's a very Spielberg film. It's a very mm. Spielberg film. And it's got Tom Cruise in it. Um, yes. But I forget it's him about a quarter of the way in because right. I'm just enjoying. Because you're an idiot. Well, <laughs> well, maybe Spielberg does bring out. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Spielberg does bring out something in Hanks that I haven't seen yet. But okay. it hasn't. Okay, been I'm, I, I, I do the know. Term, I do know. That I <laughs> term, yeah. ter- it was terminally boring. Yeah. the terminal, wasn't it? And that's the post. The post. Right, and that's a seven out of ten from you, is it, Matt? Um, n- nine out of ten. Blimey, you must have been a bit pissed off with that as well. <laughs> well, I've seen Ice Age 2 this week. Yay! Yeah, all right. <laughs> Lee, anything you'd films. like to contribute? Go on. Go, go, go on, I was going to say, the Ice Age films are always ones, they're a bit like stew. I never look forward to eating it, but when I watch it... They're good fun. They're good fun, and they're yeah. really well made. Stew they're is good nicely fun. done, yeah. <laughs> huh? Stew is good fun. Yeah, your, your, the dumplings. your metaphor just... slips then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A bit like stew. Yeah, like... You'll never look forward to it, but the, then no, you like watch it, it and you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good fun. I love no, watching I stew. No, I forget that there are dumplings in stew. Okay. I love dumplings. That's I my favourite bit of stew. Yeah, dumplings are good. The Ice Age films are great entertainment. Have you ever watched the Kung Fu Panda trilogy? I have seen the first one. <gasps> They're stunning. Yeah, but I don't like sort of. Mm, yeah, yeah, Jack Black. No, not that. I don't like Jack Black, but yeah. I don't like the sort of themes. Mm. I, th- I in um, the one that I reviewed. God, title's gone from my head. What was it called? The one with the the Jap the uh, Chinese one. Oh yeah, yeah, Monster Hunt. Monster Hunt. In that, I was fine with it because mm. the mixture of live action and the fantasy element. 
But in Kung Fu Panda, I'm just thinking. I'm my brain is sort of thinking, kids' film, and there's lots of people kicking each other and all this kind of stuff, mm. and I'm just kind of my eyes are sort of slightly terrifying me, okay. so I couldn't really enjoy it. Whereas I say just just a really fun bunch of characters thrown together in a bit of a six sitcom on the ice. Yeah, and yeah, really good. Characters. And yeah, basically, it's just the interactions between the characters. And you assume them. that they can't bring anything new to it at the table. You think, oh no, not another one. And then they do. Yeah, every they time. Do. Yeah, every yeah. time. When the fir- when it first came out, though, it wasn't a massive hit. The first Ice Age. It oh, took it took it took its time to mm, get known. Mm. Not a lot of people seem to know it. I went to go see it. In the I think it must have been a bigger it. hit over in America. Otherwise, yeah, they'd maybe, never yeah. have made a sequel, yeah. would they? Because the sequels have been pretty quick and coming. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it was just because um, it was around the time there was a sudden glut of those CGI movies, wasn't there? There was yeah, things yeah, like yeah. Over the Hedge and Madagascar. There were yeah. big, bigger, bigger films than and penguins and yeah. stuff. Mm. Yeah, there were lots of similar <laughs> ones at the time, all about animals undergoing journeys. Was right? it? Is the Penguins one the one with Werner Herzog in it? Was it? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, it is. He plays a. He's in the scene. Oh, is he? Yeah, he plays okay. a, a director. In March of the, what was it called? Is that the one? Not March. Oh, no, 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 no. Was it? What, what the March pe- of the Happy pe- Feet? Happy Feet? Is that it? March no, of the Happy no, I'm not thinking of Happy Feet. You're playing the Penguins what's movie what's from Madagascar. Maybe. There's, no, one, the, with, there's, there's a, one with Werner Herzog who plays a film director in one. There's one of these kids' animated CGI movies about penguins. Happy Feet or Happy Feet 2? Happy Feet, yeah. March of the Happy Feet, as I just called it. That's a really dark movie, Happy Feet. Isn't that your own? Dark movie. Is it? Yeah. We just, this is the CGI special, dear listener. <laughs> I've a, not seen it. Have you not seen it? No. Happy feet. It goes somewhere. You do they do all die? Expect. All the penguins? Not quite, but it does go to a they place. They don't quite you, all die. It goes to a place you do not expect. Okay. Which is brilliant the first time you see it, and the second time it's like, oh, this is really depressing. Yeah. Is it? I can't remember. Are they all right. hit by an iceberg or something? Uh, I don't know. Simon's not going to say. I mean, it's been out for ages. You can. It's not well, spoilers there's a point, anymore. There's a point where he gets captured and he gets taken back to civilization, and all of oh, a sudden, yeah. the CGI penguins are interacting with real people. All real people are oh, watching yeah. them inside a zoo, Brilliant. and he's stuck there and becomes incredibly depressed and becomes institutionalized. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh no, I've seen tiny, tiny snippets, but I've not seen mm. it. No. Should um, we? Should we move on to the subject of Doctor Who then? Briefly. Since we've been going for 20 minutes. <laughs> well, we could break this into three because I wanted to do a 20 minutes on the classic series before we move on to the new series because the theme of this was going to be story arcs in Doctor Who. Oh, right, okay. In because, I've, as I said, I wanted to do other episodes in between our Series 6 reviews. So... Because we haven't had any feedback on the last one yet, in order to do the next one, if we do do a next one, I thought, well, this is a subject that comes up so often that you sort of brush over or only talk briefly about. I thought, why not unpick it? So I was going to do RTD this week and Stephen Moffat in four weeks or whatever when we next get a free spot. But but, but I thought, let's do a few minutes on the classic series first. Because I've not really thought a lot about this. I just thought, let's do this subject. And we probably all know it well enough that we can just sit down, basically, with totally cold on it and unpick it. But then it struck me, the classic series, we always think of the classic series as being arc-free. It's full of arcs. Yeah, 
But the ones I wanted to bring up are the not quite so obvious ones. Because when people say, well, arcs in the classic series, your first two thoughts are Trial of a Time Lord, Key to Time. And then next after that, you're probably thinking, well, Ian and Barbara trying to get back home. Dalek's master plan. Well, that's just a story, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know, though. Because it is the length of... I mean, in terms of the duration, it's the length of a season now. And it has got the Egypt bit in the middle. And there are individually named episodes. And there are different writers and different directors. So what I I always think it's got an umbrella title, much like Trial of a Time Lord. It's got a single story code and it was all the same director, though. Yeah, so technically, but narratively, it's actually a story arc, I think. Maybe. Hmm. But what I was thinking of was more... Well, there there are sort of two areas in which the classic series does story arcs that I was thinking more specifically of ones that kind of reflect the kind of thing we have now mm-hmm. and it all takes place in the early to mid 1970s and it's all under Barry Letts and Terence Dix and Robert Holmes and it's not the obvious sort of Joe Grant goes from being ditzy to the woman who throws himself in front of the doctors to save him from Azal but during the unit years you have not just the Mike Yates thing, and the Mike Yates thing is a proper story arc of the kind you'd expect in the modern day if that had happened to the companion. But because it happens to one of the people in unit, you probably put it to the side of your mind. But, I mean, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, let's unpick the Mike Yates just for a couple of minutes. We're talking about three stories. Basically basically. three stories. In the first, The Green Death, he goes undercover... And after going undercover, he gets brainwashed by the supercomputer, who's basically the villain in the story. And at the end of it, the Doctor brings him out of the brainwashing, dehypnotizes him, and you think, oh, that's done and dealt with, back to square one, because that's how Doctor Who works. But actually, that's not how Doctor Who was working under Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks, as I'll go into when I get to the other thing. And then Invasion of the Dinosaurs... You've got this plot where you know there are lots of double agents. I mean, you know afterwards when you go back to it from the knowledge of having read the book or whatever. But even from the start, it comes becomes clear quite quickly that there are people working against UNIT in the deserted London. And so you're aware that there are people who are double agents, whatever you want to call them. And then... As the story goes on, obviously it becomes almost farcical in that almost every character who's in it who isn't a regular turns out to be a double agent. And then at the end of the story, one of the regulars turns out to be one too. And that's Mike Yates because... Not necessarily because he didn't recover from the brainwashing, but maybe because the fact that he'd been brainwashed triggered something in his mind. And now there's this aspect of Mike Yates that falls for the Operation Golden Age con. Mm. Mm. So Mike Yates gets a sensitive dismissal from UNIT, but then he gets a story further down the line in Planet of the Spiders where he gets the redemption part of the story arc, where he's now retired from UNIT, but he's gone to a commune in the countryside where he's gone for the peace and quiet that he needs to sort of put himself back together. He discovers a plot that's going on. 
and of course it's him who calls in Sarah Jane who then calls in the Doctor so Mike Yates is in that story too redeeming himself go on well, it's, a, it's not you're the right. biggest of arcs no but there's also one that's echoed down almost of the new adventures as well so I'm thinking I remember Who Killed Kennedy yeah. remember the David Bishop yeah, book yeah, yeah. that basically plays on this idea so in the Barrelettes years there's a big thing about the military, how the doctor works with the military and what the military, what the effect the military has on individuals. And you either have the brigadier who's really stoic, who just gets more and more buffoonish as he's get, getting older. But the good thing about the Mike Yates part is it's actually demonstrating that working with unit has negative effects as well and has psychological has consequences. Yeah, yeah, it has post-traumatic stress. And that's something that gets fully developed later on in the 90s when actually post-traumatic stress becomes a big thing after the Gulf War and the, and the Falklands War. And that's what Who Killed Kennedy is all about. It's full of this sort of, the effects that UNIT has on the individuals. I think it's dealt with in a few other of those. I don't know yeah, very yeah. well. But Scales think, yeah, and yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, if that had been applied to a companion, you could imagine that sort of thing turning up in the new series where you'd get a a storyline in which the companion has doubts midway through the series and then comes good and redeems himself at the end. Something along those lines. Mm. You can imagine that sort of thing. But the big one that I wanted to talk about that doesn't really get talked about in terms of it being a story arc at all from the 1970s is what happens after Terence Dix has co-written The War Games. Barry Letts comes in. Robert Holmes becomes a regular writer who eventually is, um, you know, uh, trained up to take over. And there's something that happens throughout the unit years that goes on right up to the deadly assassin that almost makes the invasion of time a kind of season finale on this arc that's been developing across six or seven years. And that is... People look at The Deadly Assassin now and they look back at the war games and say, well, the transition from one to the other, as if there was nothing in between, is a direct contrast. But actually, if you think about what's in between, there isn't a season goes by where you don't either get an appearance by the Time Lords or some serious mention of the Time Lords or the Time Lords are somehow interfering in what the Doctor's doing. You, obviously, season seven is only four stories, but it starts off with the Time Lords exiling the Doctor to Earth. And then the very first story in season eight starts with the Time Lord, mm. who just pops up completely, completely and utterly different from the Time Lords who are in the War Games to warn the Doctor that the Master's on his way. And of course, we all forget, but the Master is a Time Lord, which ties back to the War Games because that's the only other time in our knowledge mm. that we've seen Time Lords before. Of course, there's the meddling monk. But at the time, most people watching probably wouldn't have put two and two together in the same way we do as fans. And then later in that season, they send him off to Oxarius for the colony in space. The following year, they send him off to... Paladon. Well, the mutants. The mutants, okay. Do they send him off to... Yes, they obviously must send him off to Peladon as well. Mm. So he goes off twice in the following series. 
And then you've got the three doctors where they show up again, giving back uh, the power of flight for the TARDIS. But that's not the end of what happens with the Time Lords, because then it starts to get more interesting. At this point, they've been keeping an eye on the Doctor and nudging him around a bit. So they pop up to tell him about the Master. They send these secret Time Lord messages to take him off to these various planets at times when there's things going on that he needs to deal with. After he goes back into space, all of a sudden it opens up a bit. So in the Time Warrior, which is not a Time Lord story, has got no Time Lords in it or anything like that, but suddenly, completely out of nowhere, Robert Holmes drops in the name of the planet they come from. Mm. Which is not, I don't think, an accident. Because Robert Holmes could quite happily have got away with writing that story and not including it. But by the same token, I don't think he dropped it in because he was deliberately at that time thinking, I'm taking this somewhere. But I think it turns up in The Time Warrior because it's on Robert Holmes's mind. And so then, at the start of Genesis of the Daleks, you've got another Time Lord coming in Mm. who's interfering with the Doctor again. And this is the first instance of Time Lords interfering with the Doctor after they've given him the power of the TARDIS back and they no longer need to to interfere with him. So now they're interfering by choice. In the brain of Morbius, which I think comes completely out of nowhere, Mm. but if you're treating this as an arc, it's another step along the way. Brain of Morbius starts off with the Doctor railing against the Time Lords for doing exactly the same thing as has happened at the start of the previous three episodes where he never mentioned it. He's landed in the wrong place. But this time it must be something to do with the Time Lords. And he says this before he realises he's on Khan and that he's got Morbius there as well. So actually it turns out that it was the Time Lords he put in there and it's a Time Lord story. Interestingly, he's a bit more pissed off at that point. Because in Genesis of the Daleks, it wasn't the TARDIS that got taken over. It was a transmat being yeah, yeah, interrupted. Yeah. But now it's his motor that's been kind of hijacked by the... So he's sort of justifiably yeah, yeah. grumpy and annoyed. Yeah. And then, of course, you get to the deadly assassin. And I think, despite the fact that I've said I don't think the Time Warrior was anything more than it was on his brain, I think when he therefore goes back to the Hero of the Time Lords interfering thing in Genesis of the Daleks... While he might not at that point be planning to get to the deadly assassin, I think that's what puts the idea in his head. And so I, I, you know, you can't say for sure one way or the other, but I think Brain of Morbius then becomes a deliberate stepping stone in between Genesis of the Daleks and Deadly Assassin. And I do think by the time you get to Deadly Assassin, that is a deliberate stage on from those previous two, by which time he's laid the groundwork for a return to Gallifrey, and then he goes ahead and does it. I don't know how closely it was planned, but it it certainly looks as if it was more than just coincidence. It's a rich idea, and it's a really exciting idea to show where the Doctor comes from, and it's one that you can tease for so so long, and so, so many of these kinds of story arcs start with suggestions and gradually build up until the climax is this kind of orgy of... Of Ex- just revelation, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. what the dead, uh, deadly assassin is. Is it's just just that kind of the excess? It's like Moonraker moon in Doctor in uh, James Bond. We don't it's... learn anything in the War Games. No. We learn everything from the deadly assassin. Yes, yeah. Um, where that leaves uh, Invasion of Time, I don't know. Well, the Invasion, invasion of Time is like a hangover. Well, 
But in modern series terms, the deadly assassin is like your sound of drums or your yes. world enough and time. An invasion of the time is like Last of the Time Lords. Or, right. uh, yeah. But I'm saying it's like the second half yeah. of a two-parter. Okay. In that, despite the fact that it's written by different people, mm. there are more revelations. Not of the same scale, because the first yeah. half's done, the big revelations. Mm. But then in a two-parter, that's how you expect it. Big revelations in the first one, resolutions in the second. Yeah. So Invasion of Time accidentally feels like natural conclusion of what's happened. And also it flips into a second story arc. So you get the Time Lord story arc that ends with Deadly Assassin, maybe Invasion of Time. But now you get the Barusa Well, story I was going to move on to this, yeah. Which, which starts with Deadly Assassin and then works its way through to... Yeah. Which, which happens across about the same period and with about as many stories mm. and as accidentally or deliberately as the Davros story arc. Yeah, people yeah. forget that mm. the first four times we see Davros, each mm. one of those stories is either immediately in his timeline following the one before, or at the very least refers back to it and follows on for it from mm. it in some way. I think I can't remember precisely, but I think Remembrance of the Daleks. No, even remember of the Daleks yeah, got the two Dalek factions. So that yeah. one, yeah, too. Yeah. So there's a yes, there's a Barusa sort of story arc going on there mm-hmm. up until the point at which Barusa turns foul or whatever. Yeah. But there's also a Davros story arc going yeah. on too. Yeah. These are and obviously an arc of infinity is a sort of a coda to the Barusa mm. story arc, albeit again a hangover. But then you get um, like the five Doctors as a continuation as well of what's up nothing I'm just going to stop talking because Lee and Simon haven't said anything in about no. 15 minutes <laughs> that's okay I think you're doing doing well I mean I agree with you that it's it, it's coming out of chance it's coming out of the fact that someone writes something and goes oh that's a good idea and then picks up on it a year later and goes oh, we can continue with that idea so it's not a planned arc like we have in the modern series in no shape or form but once you've but, created something as yeah. big as the, the, the time was or as big as just mentioning Gallifrey like you say you have to keep you have to step forward to that well you say that but I think there is an illusion between the Davros story arc and the modern series and I was going to get to this when we talk about Russell T Davis, and then in a few weeks when we talk about Stephen Moffat but I'll just lay it in front of you in Stephen Moffat terms, on the one hand, people like Vastra, where he doesn't necessarily plan what the next Vastra story is going to be, but he leaves those characters in a place where he can pick it up, just as Davros gets left in a place where it can mm. be picked up for the, by the next guy. And in Russell T. Davis' terms, and this is something that we will talk about in depth, uh, either <laughs> later on in this episode or next, depending how quickly we get to it, because I don't think we are going to get to it. But every time we see the Daleks, right from the Rob Shearman episode Dalek, right up to Journey's End, every time we see the Daleks, it's the same Daleks developing the same storyline, pretty much. Obviously not it's the same Dalek in the first one, but the first one is the prologue to what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then it's all about the cult of Scaro, and each one follows on from the last. People, uh, people moaned about Stephen Moffat leaving things hanging. Not a million miles away from Ross T. Davis having Dalek Khan show yeah. up in Journey's End and expecting everyone to remember who that is from Daleks in Manhattan. And I always think that the genius of the writing doesn't come from 
the idea that it's been carefully plotted from the beginning that Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davis or Robert Holmes knew exactly where he was going. The genius of your writing is to know how to write a story with enough loose ends to know that maybe they could be picked up in the next story and know how to pick them up and then create more loose ends. And, and find... Just keep on it's like picking up the baton, isn't it? Isn't it? You pick up yeah. the baton and so it makes it the illusion that it's one race. I mean, this is Dickens. Yeah. And this, you, is what, yeah. this is what Dickens does. He writes... He writes in instalments once a month and he knows exactly how to do that. You write to a cliffhanger. He hasn't planned. The, Oliver Twist wasn't planned as a story mm, from beginning mm, to end. Mm. He was able to adapt to the needs of the or the desires of the audience. So Fagin's a really tiny character at the beginning mm. and he discovers that it's really popular with the public. So suddenly Fagin becomes a more important character throughout. <clears throat> and that's what, that's what these TV writers, these great TV writers are. And that's their skill is adapting to the stories they've written and knowing how to sort Interesting. of Interesting, I, I read, read it somewhere this week, you were saying about, you know, tips for writing and things like that and, and for, you know, writing little sections and then moving on to the next. And they say that you should always stop writing just where you know what's going to happen next. Mm. And that's the point you stop. Yeah. So it's like you say, it's like those little open-ended things that are just itching to be carried yeah. on. Yeah. And of course, the other part of that is, if you are going to continue with the story you have to have a new story that's worth telling rather than just repeating the last one. Mm -hmm. And just, for example, the Davros thing, whatever you think of the merits of the stories, Destiny of the Daleks tells a completely different story from Genesis of the Daleks, that logic problem. It's a very David, um, David Douglas Adams-y type thing, that logic problem that they've got in Destiny. Then Resurrection moves on and it becomes all about this war and of course, Davros, while he might have been born out of a war in Genesis, he's not been a figure of war in that way that suddenly finds himself at the heart of this war in Resurrection of the Daleks, particularly that kind of a war. And then remember, uh, Revelation, for all that, is not one that I like, but it does move him on completely again. And there's validity in all these different stories. And of course, Remembrance becomes... A race allegory going back almost to things like, um, well, the very first Dalek story, which is a essentially a race allegory. Mm-hmm. So you found five different stories to tell with Davros. And in the new series, the Daleks, Dalek, Parting of the Ways, Doomsday, Daleks in Manhattan, for all, I'm not talking about the merits of it, mm-hmm. but whether it finds something new for them to do. The only one really that doesn't is the Stolen Earth and Journey's End. I think, I don't really think, but it brings back Davros, so it gives the appearance of doing something new with them. We'll talk about it in more detail when we get to talk about the Russell T. Davis mm. stuff. But I think the Davros stuff in the classic series, I don't like those stories, not really. Genesis, obviously. But I can't argue with the fact that the people who are writing those stories are at least working at not just repeating what went on in the previous one. Would the only master stories be an arc? There are arc elements to it. There are probably sort of multiple arcs going through. Well, the first three stories, because they follow on one from another, are considered an arc. But yes. I don't think it's an arc in the same way as we're looking at. Although, but, uh, it's got elements. Like yeah, and they always, they always sort of... They always refer to how the last story, with the only stories... Or they there is to. one story that moves the character on, being Planet of Fire. Yes. Well, that's and almost, maybe survival as well. The other yeah, ones in yeah. between, not so much. I think Planet Fire is almost the end of uh, 
the end of an arc because it's portrayed as this kind of well, if Planet Fire, dualism yeah. between him and the Doctor, and Planet Fire is supposed to be where he dies and then he comes back. Well, if you played um, Keeper of Tri- well, Deadly Assassin, maybe mm. Keeper of Triarch and Legopolis, Castor Valve, Planet of Fire, and Survival, yeah, they would add up as a oh, story yeah. essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A long-form story that took an yeah. entire season to tell. So, like most times with Doctor Who, if you cut out Colin Bakey, it's, <laughs> it's most... Well, see, yeah, you've got stories where the Master appears, but it's not a Master story. Mark no. of the Rani and Trial of a Time Lord, they're yeah. not Master stories, five no. Doctors. So, he's yeah. just there. But Survival tells a story that involves him in a way where he's integral to it. Mm. Despite the fact that he was added, they adapted to make him integral to mm. it. And Planet of Fire, the same, moves well, him on. With Survival, they, I mean, they, adapt, they adapted it, but the, story, the original storyline, which is Survival of the Fittest, mm. this kind of binary oppositions, that works so perfectly, perfectly yeah. with the, the master. That, yeah, to add it was no, was no biggie. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it works perfectly. And the thing about those first three stories is, although essentially they're three separate stories that follow on one from the other, because they do all involve the Master, and although it's got that ridiculous thing like you had between Terror of the Autons and the Mind of Evil, where Mind of Evil Part 1 is a week after Terror of the Autons Part 4, but you find that the Master's been working on this plan for at least six months already, Mm. you've got the same thing essentially in Castrovalva, (laughs) but in Castrovalva you've also got he's kidnapped Adric. So... Obviously, the Castrovalva thing can't have been going on no. for longer than a few days at most or something stupid like that. Yeah. You always get the impression that the Master's got little mini-projects yeah, going, going on, on all, all over the universe. Which is quite a nice idea, which yeah. I kind of I kind of like, that he's got like little hobbies. Yeah, he's got hobbies here and there that he dots around and he sets the plates spinning and then occasionally goes back to it and finds that the Doctor's basically just... Not the plate off, off. Oh, not this one. Well, I'll go back to I'll go back to <laughs> to Runnymede now and try the Magna Carta. Oh, darn! Well, that didn't last long. Yeah, yeah. That's but a that, good character for the Master. To, yeah. Well, that is very well. That is what the Master's always been like. Yeah. Isn't it? Let's face it. I don't think, to my mind, Keeper of Triarch and Logopolis Castrovalva. I don't think they've. I don't think they fit together as a story that forms a box set like the box set they were put out in. Mm-hmm. The Masters in each of them, essentially, the three of them, apart from a changing Doctor, have got the same cast. But despite having the same cast, it each story feels like a refresh and a new start. There are no sort of plot things hanging between I mean, them. Nyssa. So there's the, there's the destruction of Trark in, in Legopolis. Yeah. But, but and there's and there's obvious connections between Legopolis and Castrovalva. So there's the because the block well, just transfer, to whatever, bring those points up one at a time. Yeah. Nissa was never supposed to be in Legopolis. No, she was brought in to. So it's not like that's an integral part of what no. The writer but as we've been doing. saying, as we've been saying, improvising to to serve. Well, yeah, an additional and the Traken thing obviously is cosmetic. You could, they could have named any planet. They just named the planet because they brought Nissa in. Yeah. So I don't think, but what I'm saying is, I don't think it works thematically mm. or plot wise. Mm. It has got things that tie it together, but they seem superficial to me. Things falling apart. There's lots of things. Well, that the that's a Christopher H. Bidney theme, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
But it works well, you, very well yeah, in yeah. the three films because Castrovalva is all about things, things collapsing, things yeah. falling apart, and the same with Trakin. But, and Logopolis. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, Logopolis is like you, the earth text of mm. things falling apart. But it does kind of work. There is another yeah. one I wanted to bring up that, because this, when we talk about Ross T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, I want to talk about the character arc as against the logistical arc. Mm. Because um, in both instances, those two writers, they write an arc where the characters will get development and the resolution is always a resolution that is emotionally resonant for the characters. But in order to do that, by and large, they have to move the pieces of the series, the stories, the plots around in order to facilitate it. So just to, you know, glance ahead briefly, the fact that the chameleon arch turns up in human nature mm. or, you know, various things like that. Mm. There is one in the classic series that's not really a story arc, but kind of is, but it also involves both a sort of character beat in the same way as the new series does, albeit not as well developed, but it also involves logistical pieces, and that is Sarah Jane trying to get home after Robot, which carries on right up to, essentially... The Seeds of Doom, it lasts two whole series. Mm. But that we think of it as only being up to Terror of the Zygons, it continues. In Robot, the Doctor invites Sarah and Harry just to take one trip. Mm. Obviously they do, and obviously that's not what happens because they go to the Ark in space, and from there they teleport down and have the Sontaran experiment, and then the teleport gets overrun by the Time Lords and taken off the Genesis of the Daleks, and then when they're finally on their way back to the Ark in space, they arrive at the wrong point in time, so they undergo Revenge of the Cybermen, and finally they get back in the TARDIS and go back home, only to discover that they've landed in Scotland and there are Zygons there. And that's kind of where we think it ends. And if you look at the pieces of that, I'll come back to what happens afterwards in a minute. If you look at the pieces of that, it's not the same as when somebody like Russell T. Davis will show you Satellite 5 under the jurisdiction of the Jagrafess and reveals that the Jagrafess is working for somebody else but not whom. And then at the end of the story, you discover it's the Daleks when you land back on Satellite 5. It's not quite the same as that. But it ain't a million miles because you've got the arc turning up twice. Mm. And the mode of travel between the various locations isn't just hop in the TARDIS and go to the next adventure. It's got, the first of all, the transmat and then the time ring. Mm. So you've actually got the writers bringing logistical elements into what could otherwise be an unconnected series of plots. Mm. So although the logistical elements aren't connected with the character elements in the same way as Ross T. Davis or Stephen Moffat would do. They're there, and that becomes like an accidental precedent for the way they're going to do things in a new series. Mm. And again, that story arc is kind of put together by Terence Dix and Barry Letts before they leave, because they are the ones commissioning the stories. And then Robert Holmes comes in and rewrites the whole middle of the series 
completely, but he's done that from the Barry Let's Cue. So although mm. it's undoubtedly Robert Holmes who's put in the Time Ring and the Transmats and the Return to the Ark, it's kind of because he's got the Barry Let's Terran Sticks mindset still going on before he develops his own thing the following year. They do something slightly, they do the same story, but slightly more elaborately with Tegan, of course. So, yeah. Who wants to get home, and they constantly try to get her home, and then she actually leaves and realises she doesn't want to be home, and then unlikely and unlikely. I was thinking, how about Leela, the education of Leela? Although I haven't come to the end of this one, actually. Because in the second series with Sarah Jane, when Robert Holmes has got his head, he doesn't actually stop it, after Terror of the Zygons, he says, oh, I'll take you back to London. Do you want to lift, Harry? And Harry says no, which gives Robert Holmes the excuse to then write a series of stories which almost exactly replicates what happens with Ian and Barbara back in season one, where, oh, we were supposed to be in London. We've accidentally ended up at the furthest reaches of the universe for Planet of Evil. Oh, we've arrived back at unit headquarters, but we're like 70 years too early. Yeah. Oh, we have arrived back in almost the right place in a little village not too far away from unit headquarters, except it's being replicated on another planet. And finally, that would have come to an end with the Seeds of Doom, which would have had the Brigadier and probably, if he'd appeared, maybe some of the other regulars in. Although that story sort of comes to an end in the Android Invasion, Seeds of Doom kind of rounds it out but it's also almost uh, it's kind of parodying that her desire to get home because it's obvious that when she doesn't get on the train in scotland it's obvious that she knows she's going to get lost in time but and and you know that when she does if she did find her way back she wouldn't actually want to leave which is what hand of fear well the vital thing is that means i think of it as relevant and it's not huge but i in Pyramids of Mars, there's a mention this is where unit headquarters will be, mm. and obviously that's cosmetic. Until the story ends with that building burning down so unit headquarters can be built there. Mm. So though it's still essentially cosmetic, they have built it into the story at least to a little degree. Yeah. But then the next one, the android invasion, almost depends upon Sarah thinking, oh, he's finally got me back to where I needed to mm, be. Yeah. So that's kind of integral to me because it's because the Android invasion doesn't feel like it's an accident. It feels like that deliberately been placed there because he's trying to get Sarah but, home. It's probably no more the, than cosmetic. Art, the irony but, is in Pyramids of Mars, he does get her back yeah. to where she comes from, but it's the but it's the false future because it's the oh, 1980s yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's been sort of blitzed by Sutek. But just exactly as in the Visitation, he gets her back to the right place, yes, but in yeah. the wrong time. Yes. Yeah, so there's that kind of mirror going on mm. there as well. But yeah, I obviously it is not a story arc in the same way as Russell T Davis would have written. But the fact that Robert Holmes keeps the story continuing, not just across one year but across two, and it is essentially part of the same story, mm. kind of just shows what the new series would do is not so very far away from the building blocks that the writers that they're most aping were already using way back in the 1970s. I think it's just a, it's almost a a factor of having really experienced writers who know how to write serials rather than series, who know how to keep these stories going and know how Mm. to, almost for their own interest, because if you're just producing an anthology series where everything restarts at the beginning of each 
each story, it must become quite boring to just if you're Robert Holmes to just start. Here's another story. Here's another story. And this is what you Doctor start Who in jokes done in the sixties, yeah. And this is what Barry Letts and Terence Dix especially moved away from in the seventies. Yeah. Because there's lots of references between stories in the seventies to ones that had gone before and. Running jokes, they were, even. The, they were in the sixties yeah. as well. Even even in the Troughton years. I mean, I've just watched Web of Fear. But the thing that it's, anchors it in the seventies yeah. is you've got the wider unit yeah. family, yeah. And yeah. so there's a continuing. Mm. Uh, the story doesn't really develop. It's a bit more elaborate. But you can't really show the unit stories out of sequence in the same way. So you could probably just about get away with doing with many of the stories in the 60s, mm. were it not for the cliffhangers at the end that lead into the next one. And let's face it, even on the VHS tapes, they edited those out. <laughs> so it's not as if, yeah. Should we talk a bit about Tegan then? Okay. Because I, I alluded to it, but it was, again, another reference back to the Ian and Barbara story. Here's a yeah. character who's accidentally stumbled on board the TARDIS. Mm. And the TARDIS has essentially kidnapped that person against their wishes, mm-hmm. trying to get home. And it does become, and this is purely accidental, I think, or it is, it's a, um, it's a result of the writers at the time, or a particular writer, let's name him because it's two of his stories that are guiltiest of this, Eric Sayward. Needs to he needs to do that Chekhov's gun thing of if you're going to have a revelation at the end of the story, it needs to refer back to something you brought up at the start. So Earthshock ends with Adric's death, but starts with Adric wanting to get home and having this big argument with the Doctor, and the Doctor finally relents and says, "Okay, I'll try and take you back home." Doesn't need to because he's dead. Visitation's slightly different, but it turn up, isn't it? Well. But Visitation, you've had this thing with Tegan that she's accidentally come on board the TARDIS, but up until the start of the Visitation, she's not really argued with it. She said, I want to go home, but up until the start of the Visitation, and in the Visitation, it's just there to facilitate them landing Mm. on Heathrow, but 500 years too early or whatever it is. But bringing that up allows them to do the... And I mean, this is not a direct link, but it's kind of one of those um, things where it's kind of a mirror at the end of the story to start. In that, she wants to get back to Heathrow, but they arrive too early, so it's right place, wrong time. But what that does is draw a link between where they've arrived and what we think of the place they've arrived in the way that we look back at history... Well, just in the way we look back at history, we're in 2018 now and we can look at history books dealing with other times and we're looking back. But then at the end of this, so the start of the story is her looking forwards from being in history and then it ends the story with, so this is what really happened with the Great Fire of London. And I don't know whether it's accidental or deliberate, but at the start of the story, it seems to me she's in the wrong time looking forwards to now. And at the end of the story, in terms of the viewers, we're now looking back to then. It kind of seems to balance itself mm. in a weird kind of a way. I don't think it. I don't know if it is deliberate, but it almost almost feels to me. It almost felt to me at the time like he did that scene with Tegan at the start to justify doing the scene with the Great Fire of London at the end. Mm. 
And I don't know why I put that two and two together and I can't explain it any better than I did just then <laughs> with that uh, sort of analogy about looking backwards and looking forwards. It's possible. But the result, whatever it's there for, the result is By the you end get of that a season. Tegan, a Tegan yeah. that sounds like she really wants to get home. And the difference between that and Sarah Jane, Sarah Jane is a character who says she wants to get home but gives all the impression of being somebody who's quite happy getting yeah, yeah, lost yeah. in time. And I think that's why the Sarah Jane story is more successful than the, the Tegan one. Because yes. it's less fun watching a companion desperate to get home and not be having these fun adventures. You only get away yeah. with it with Ian and Barbara because nobody knew what Doctor Who was. Hmm. So they didn't realise the adventures were supposed to be, despite being scary and dangerous, fun as well. Hmm. Yeah. So, But the Ian and Barbara thing changes by the keys of Mariners and it becomes... These are terrifying and dangerous, but fun adventures in time and space. Mm. So even Ian and Barbara only really undergo four adventures, say, at most, before it changes. Mm. And then when Ian and Barbara come to leave, then it's a really difficult decision because they don't really want to leave, Mm. but they know they'll get no other chances. Mm. So it's either do this now or don't do this at all. Mm. And that's a really difficult decision to make. And again, that's kind of mirrored. And, you know, this is two stories that most people don't revisit very often. It's revisited in Time Flight and Arc of Infinity Mm. because Time Flight is the Doctor getting Tegan home. But it's also the moment Tegan makes the decision, actually, this isn't where I wanted to be. I do want to continue travelling. And then you've got that weird, dreadfully written scene at the end where they just leave without her by accident. Hmm. That scene at the end would have made sense if the Doctor had got back in the TARDIS with Nyssa and... Oh, not even with Nyssa and Adric, just with Nyssa, and said, well, this is where Tegan wanted to be, isn't it? Were we supposed to say goodbye to her? And Nyssa says, well, I don't know, did we? And then they leave, you know, something yeah, along those Almost lines. as bad as the scene at the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth when he leaves Susan behind, which is, yeah. But at least he, justif- he justifies it. Yeah. It's oh, I, creepy. <laughs> it is, but at least it's justified yeah. in the characters' minds. Yes. At the end of Time Flight, it's not justified at all. No. It's no. presented as an accident. Yeah. Despite it being exactly what the characters had been aiming to do, so there's no reason to present it as an accident. And then, of course, there's a lovely thing they do at the start of the next season. If it hadn't been for the fact that the episodes were going out twice a week. So Tegan's in the Radio Times as appearing in the first two episodes of Arc of Infinity, despite the fact that they keep her out of the first one to make it a surprise that she's back. That was just... Keep her out of the first two and bring her back in the third one. And you've got similarly mirrored parallels so that Sarah paralleled with Tegan you've also got Leela paralleled with Ace because there are yes. similar story arcs mm. where it's the doctor trying to educate the companion with Leela they kind of give up on it quite rapidly yeah, with yeah, Ace yeah. with Ace they don't really have it but then they develop it as it goes along well with Ace it's sort of with Ace it's almost as if they didn't start intending that, but realised they were doing it. So once they realised that they'd started doing it, they decided to make a thing of it. Well, I get the impression it was McCoy. It was McCoy's, part of McCoy's sort of drive to give her more to do. But the way the character comes in in Dragonfire is almost as if it's being set up from the the start. 
the Dragonfire, the way it's introduced, she's introducing Dragonfire is less, is more about there's a mystery to her. Mm-hmm. There's something strange about her. Gosh, who does that remind you of? Well, so, um, but then it's time, it sort of develops into this. I mean, the, it's the way the relationship between her and the Doctor develops mm. quite quickly. I mean, there's know, a thing with that. There's with a thing with all the companions where the Doctor always has to explain what's going on. Yeah, but I think it's um, probably just an accident of who the writers were that rather than the Doctor just saying this is what's happening. He explains the reasons why things are happening more, maybe, and so that feeds into this. Well, thing. it was the it was the interview with Sophie Aldred recently that I heard on Radio Free Scara, <clears throat> the Canadians, and she was saying that that part of this is a sort of prosaic reason that McCoy didn't want to have so much. Yeah, yeah. So he asked so much her, expository yeah. dialogue. So can't can't it be? I ask her what she thinks is going on. And then and that immediately right. becomes yeah. an education thing and a yeah, tutoring yeah. thing. And then obviously the writers adapt to that and start and start turning it into that story. And of course, yeah, you did mention Leela as well, and there is yes. a Pygmalion going on. Yeah. Yeah. For three stories. Yes. Yeah. And then it it disappears. Yeah. Which is a shame because it was well, because Louise Jameson, she's a well, she's a fantastic actress, and the way those two characters working together works really nicely. But the odd thing about that relationship is that was developed by Robert Holmes. Chris Boucher wrote the first two, obviously from what he and Holmes had discussed. And then Holmes goes on to write it in the third one. But then it starts being absent from the very next story, which is Terence Dick's. And Robert Holmes comes back later in that next year and he's still script editor for half the next series and it's gone already, despite the fact that Holmes was the one who developed it. But the weird thing of all of that is, although it starts in the face of evil and it moves on in the robots of death, it really, really takes hold and it's really, really done really well in the one that Robert Holmes writes, which is Talons of Wang Chiang. So how... Why it's Robert Holmes who then drops it is a total mystery, really. It is. It is odd, isn't it? They could really have done something quite special <laughs> with um, with Leela, actually, and just by changing her clothes, you know. Yeah, but is that, is that the issue? Is that what it is? Is that they discovered what was popular with with the audiences was to keep her, which is to keep her as no, it is. because you because it's already starting to drop in horror of Fang Rock, where she's wearing like a jumper and jeans. And on the other hand, you could have still developed it in terms of the character's personality, despite what she was wearing. So it didn't really, even if they'd wanted to put her back in their skins, they still could have, mm-hmm. and could have still kept that story ticking along. <clears throat> yeah. But it just almost, I mean, it's still there a little bit in the dialogue, but it's not there in the stories anymore. And she essentially, once K-9 turns up as well, it's like there are a couple of soldiers working for a general almost at, at times. Mm. Um, so, Tur- yeah. Turlow? Yeah, actually, nice. yeah, yeah. Good point. Turlow, purely by chance, really, but he gets an arc because he's introduced in a story that was written by Peter Grimwade and then he's written out accidentally 
I think pretty much, in another story written by Peter Grimwade, who can then return to his themes. But of course, the interesting thing there is that Christopher Bidney comes in, in between those two stories, and develops him and pushes him on himself. Mm. So although you don't learn, you learn a lot about his character in front of us, you don't learn a huge amount about his backstory, but what you do learn does feed into what then happens in Planet of Fire. Mm. And it also reminds it by Frontios, you need that reminder that he's not human. Yeah, in order that you can do Planet of Fire. All, yeah. all of the episodes between those important and interesting moments yeah. are pretty flat. Yeah, yeah. He's he's yeah, his character sort of dips and he just becomes the, the person time. person yeah. making a fruit cocktail for the first doctor. Or he gets locked up. Most yeah. of the time he gets locked up. Quite a yeah. Because the writers don't know what to do with him. Mm. So he's just he's locked up for most of the Terminus, he's locked up for most of the King's Demons, he's sort of off on side stories in most of the others, The Awakening, for example. Mm. So he's out of the way. But of all the characters who've been in the whole classic series, maybe, so it's probably a good job we brought it up, he's probably the one who gets the most interesting backstory that actually gets paid off on. Mm. So it's probably fortunate that it was Peter Grimwade who gets to introduce him and write him out. Mm. Because because you can do it with other writers, but another writer is not going to have the same grasp of what the first writer was thinking. Because when you're thinking about a story, only a certain amount of what you've thought ends up on the page, especially in terms of the characters. But Grimwade was able it's, to think both ends of it. It's such a shame that Pip and Jane Baker didn't write Dragonfire and really have a chance to express their Mel master plan of the, the arc that they carefully and integrated through the, all the Mel stories. I don't think if that's only, their fault. I think you've got to lay back. that at JNT's door <laughs> for asking for a computer programmer from Pea's yeah. Pottage who was yeah. into Keep Fit. Mm. How do you write that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a shopping list gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> what about the chameleon arc? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's your that's yeah. your primary contribution to Drops tonight's podcast. Off the stage. You open the podcast by saying "ass," and you close the podcast <laughs> with that joke. <laughs> well, that well, there we go. There we are. Uh, Tell us like the human chameleon snake and that, because you got you know chameleon gets a rather interesting start and a rather interesting end, and again is flat. I'm not sure he even gets an interesting start. He gets yeah. a more interesting end than he gets an he interesting does. beginning, yeah, to be yeah. fair. Actually, yeah. his beginning ain't that bad. There's something fairly interesting about having there. It's just yes. that they don't really do anything with him. No. So it, you've got this robot who can impersonate people so that the people who know those people find them indistinguishable from the real thing. But then that plot doesn't really go anywhere. Oh, that always really puzzled me that they got rid of him because essentially the, the you know the the robot didn't work very well on set. And so let's just get rid of it. let's not mention him for these stories. But the thing can turn into anyone you want. So yeah. just make it a by human. An yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like hello. Yeah, and he can turn into different people. So make him a fairly a fairly strong actor yeah. who's well known. Bring Richard Briers in as a companion, then bring somebody else. Bring Ken Dodd in for exactly, the next yeah. as a companion. Special guest companion per yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have, didn't. 
didn't. No. Well, they even had an actor silvered up at one point, didn't they? So you could have just stayed like that. Anthony Ainley did, didn't he? I think. Yeah. Wasn't it? No, it was, oh, it was Harry's father. father. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Right, yeah. That looked a bit silly, but apart from that. <laughs> yeah. But the auction was there for It was, nice. it was quite creepy in a way. Shape changing. Looked yeah. a bit yeah. silly. You're talking about Doctor Who. <laughs> well, in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> I tell you what we've not talked about, well, we have talked about, but we've not talked about as much as we perhaps might, is the companions. And that is the difference, is that in the new series, the story arcs have almost exclusively focused on the companions, very specifically. Whereas here, we have talked about the companions, and in maybe two of the instances, Leela and Ace, the story arc's been about the companions, but most of the time, despite the fact that you say, oh, it's Ian and Barbara trying to get home, that's almost a story arc that's happening that they're in rather than one that's about them. They, there's a certain I mean. amount of acceptance, isn't there? Because the TARDIS is literally mm. out of control and they have no idea where it's going, then they kind of sit back and just go along with the ride. Mm-hmm. Whereas later on, there's this idea that the doctor can steer it to a certain extent so there's always this expectation that he's going to get him back at some point mm. well after three doctors he's supposed to have the power to steer it now mm. so the doctor not being able to steer the tardis only really lasts the first six years of the series mm. the only trouble is because that setting is the way the series is done when they give him the power to steer it back he just never gets to the right place because he's a bit rubbish at it mm. yeah and then they even throw in, um, after the key to time, the randomizer, which lasts all of about one season before that disappears again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, we've been going for over an hour now. We're not going to start on Russell T. Davis and do another two hours on him now or whatever it would be. So we'll save. So we'll make this a three parter instead of a two parter. We've done the classic series. We'll do Russell T. Davis next in four weeks or whatever and we'll do Stephen Moffat sometime after that. Maybe it's two parts on Stephen Moffat seeing as he's got nearly twice as many series I guess. We'll see how it goes. Is there anything else from the classic series that anybody wants to bring up? And is there any conclusion to draw? From... Well, it's amazing It's amazing how when you start thinking about it there's quite how, a how lot. Intricate, <laughs> intricate the story mm. arcs can be. And beyond and, and even I always forget the obvious story arcs. Sometimes I forget the E space, the three set in E space. Mm-hmm. I forget the Black Keeper Garden Trark trilogy, and, yeah. yeah, and the Black Garden trilogy. So almost all the time, there's some sort of, and with those kind of character arcs, the only it's, time it's constantly you don't really get one, apart from occasionally the cliffhanger from one story into the next is between about 1964 and 1969. Mm. Really, I can't think... I mean, what you get between 64 and 69 is lots of returning monsters. Mm. But let's face it, The Chase is in no way a direct sequel to Dalek Invasion of Earth, which is in no way a direct sequel to the Daleks, you know, in terms of anything that happens in the stories. Mm. And the same with the Ice Warriors. When they come back in Seeds of Death after having been in the Ice Warriors... I mean, apart from the fact that they look the same, they're written and behaving and in a time period and using technology and having plans that have got nothing to do with the previous story. Great Intelligence is the same. Yeti in both stories, but nothing else about them. I quite like the mini art with Travers. Yeah, 
that's one instance of a like an character turning up. And yeah. it, well, it would have been more. So there was a the third possibility with the invasion. Uh, in which fact, point there was a third story have... planned as well. Yeah, even yeah. when that fell apart. Yeah. What about the forty-eight-year-long arc with the blossoming, growing love affair that the Doctor has with his TARDIS, which uh, comes to uh, head in the uh, Gee, Doctor's wife. Is, you're right. That is one where he gets to actually speak to it. It's not a story arc, but I tell you what. Oh, it's a thread, isn't it? I was yeah. bad. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, the TARDIS and the Doctor are the only two things that are constant throughout the entire series. So there's always going to be... So that's the story rather yeah. than no, an intricate story arc. But Shut up, Matt. <laughs> but every now and again you get a development like he has the power to fly it taken away from him he mm. has the power to fly it given back he wasn't able to uh, pilot it with any accuracy at all there's a, there's and a, now he can there's a very nerdy study to be performed of how successful the Doctor can fly the TARDIS and, and there's quite percentages a, there's, but doctor. there's also quite a nerdy thing to try and find explanations for it so his refurbishment of the TARDIS in the five Doctors Sort of affects his ability to sort of land accurately, and there are some where he's getting very good at these short hops, and he lands precisely. Black Orchid, yeah, just a few, yeah, yeah exactly. Stories before the Five Doctors. Mm. So there's, there's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah. There's a study to be written in We're service do it. of whoever the writer was for that particular story, essentially. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, then, the Doctor's wife. Speaking of the TARDIS. Uh, Week after that, I'm guessing if it gets to it, we'll do the second half of what the fans want. If we get any feedback, maybe where, we won't. Who knows? Where are they emailing their feedback to? Blue box. Yeah, but by the time this goes out, we'll have recorded that. Yeah, it's always it's always good <laughs> social media marketing. Okay, blue box podcast at yahoo.co.uk. You can find us on Facebook as well. Oh. Doctor Who's Blue Box Podcast or if you want to do Twitter you're better off finding me JR underscore Southall if you get a bit confused because there was another podcast with a reasonably similar title just look for the uh, really good looking bloke with a pair of glasses on and grey hair that would be JR is there some reason you just did that? <laughs> I looked at our Facebook page the other then the first thing that I saw was you doing a strange face on our page Is it? it's a big I... picture of you just I don't know. Does, does, yeah. does the Blue Box podcast on iTunes actually mention my name? No. No, no. I've, no I've been on it for two and a half years. No, no, it's no, just no, been no. there since the start. Yeah. No, your, your name's not on anything, Matt. No, I know. I'm just, yeah, but your name's just Matt that is close maybe... enough to Mark that people are listening. <laughs> but... <laughs> so depressing. <laughs> I've still got hair on her. <laughs> All right. Until these things happen. I was Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Boomtish. Uh, Is that the first time Matt's ever made the rest of us laugh? (laughs) It's a classic moment. Two and a half years in the making. Knowing my Pertwee anecdotes um, during the the (laughs) one we recorded in the library made people laugh. Oh my god, really? Yeah, but I think people were just. That was nearly two and a half years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) He was Mark. Lee. Simon. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.
shut up. See, hour and 20 minutes, and we didn't get in. We did not even get to the subject of this week's podcast. Two hours. We've been doing it for two hours. Hour and 20 minutes. I just oh, said. hour and 20 minutes. Just about. Yeah, but it's always more fun talking about the classics. <laughs> Ooh, look at you. Yeah, but I don't know. I always feel that everything about the classic series has been said. But then we say new things. That's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's the point. I always the, try the, and say, whenever I talk about anything, I always try and say something that never been said before of course you can't yeah you just try because otherwise there'd be no point mm. in talking at all welcome, welcome to the academic world where well, you're yeah. studying things from the 17th whether the listeners can come up with anything that we have never talked about to do with the classic series Ooh. oh there's lots of things we've not we've not done an episode on costumes we've not done an episode on spaceships we've not done an episode on special effects we've talked about costumes quite a lot and we all know that you know the future is shiny and there's a lot I of know, sub- you've <laughs> talked about the costumes you didn't like and did like quite a lot there's a lot of subjects I've never got to talk about on the Blue Box podcast that's well, true no, what are you talking about Mark are those your are those your solo episodes <laughs> Oh, a solo episode. A solo episode. <laughs> I don't really care about it. <laughs> it was almost like longing then. Oh, solo. What? The ability Ooh, to just talk episodes. without talk without interruption. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being like JR. <laughs> wow. I know. No, I can't. Maybe. But if you had a solo episode, you could talk about what you want. Whatever DVDs you it could be called the Blue Barber Box Podcast. Yeah. Barber Barber. I could talk Baba about Papa. the tree of wooden clogs and Satan Tango. Jan Jan Dalman. Yeah. Sorry, I glazed over the house. (laughs) We've been somewhere. Homer Simpson is an intellectual. Anyway, going back to what we were saying, (laughs) you can't say anything that's never been said before because everything's said. But in trying to say something that's never been said before, even though you won't find that thing, you might find new ways to say the things that have been said purely because you're trying not to say. The things that have been said, and the and the key to, and the key to that saying, made sense, Lee. Don't you it, dare laugh at me. <laughs> the key to saying the key to finding new things about something like Doctor Who is finding connections between disparate elements. Which oh, is perfect for JR. You, no, bring, two, you no. bring two elements together and compare them, and you get something oh, new. Disparate elements: the Yeti and Chameleon. Oh, both robots, both pretending to be things that they're not. Both. Should have had more stories than they did, but didn't get those stories for reasons yeah. that were to do with the production oh, rather that, than the story themselves. That's gonna be that could be a lot of fun. Ah, uh, we could do a whole episode 20, of this. 20, 20 elements that are just basically just... Doctor Who snap. I'll make about fifty cards with characters and things just from the classic series, and you'll turn it over, and one of them will be. Robert Holmes, yeah. and then the other one will be Mel. Mestor from the Twin Dilemma, <laughs> and you have to make a connection between Robert Holmes and Mestor. It's not having to make a connection; it's, it's about, finding the connection it's that find, exists. It's about intelligently finding a connection, not randomly finding it. <laughs> oh, intelligent. Go on, then. A, You've got three seconds point. of dead air before you get to Robert Holmes meets Mestor. Dead air. What do you mean? What I mean, what I mean is, I'm challenging him to come up with a connection between Robert Holmes oh. and Mestor in three seconds. I don't think there is. Is there? Eric Saywood? I've just challenged you, Eric Saywood. That'll have to be it. But that's more of a six degrees of separation type connection. Yeah. Maybe that's the game. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, time to move on. Okay, yeah, let's not do that one. It's a crap idea. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it sounded like fun. That one we did in the library where I just said the names of all oh, the stories fun. in order. That was fun. Oh, and everybody had no more than 15 seconds to talk about each story. That was fun until we discovered that Andy hadn't seen anything, anything. <laughs> before, before 2005. And so, so for about an hour and a half, it was just, it was just stymied. How, it was good to record It was good fun recording that episode. That was great fun. And actually, listening back, because I always listen back to them before they go out, you know, because I'm always thinking, oh, God, that's going to be so horrifyingly boring. I'd better pull it. And, of course, never do. But that one was quite fun to listen to as well. Yeah. Mm. I thought. I like. I enjoyed recording it. Doctor Who. It's, yeah. good, it's good being in the library sometimes. Yeah? Yeah. Maybe Just to change the scene. Time. Change, Change the scenery. scenery. Yeah. Right, next week we're going down to the library to play <laughs> so long as Doctor we're not... Who Six Degrees of yeah. Snap. So long as we're not watching the air zone solution again, <laughs> then I'm fine. Oh, no, that was fun. Oh, no, no, no. We've that was got... fun seeing your pain, actually, Matt, I've got to say. <laughs> We've got Zygon to look forward to next time, surely. Zygon. Does that have nudity in it? Because I'm not watching nudity in front of all of you. Well, all Zygons are nude. Why? Because you're, because you're of a different generation. We're not playing. We're not. What? We're of a different generation. You're what are you talking about? You're of a mean? different generation. You're all in your sort of. What are you saying? It's like watching a nudity with your parents. When you get into your <laughs> mid to late fifties, then it's a slightly you have a slightly different attitude towards the world. You do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, but we're all in our forties, man. Yeah. I'm not sure if you right. realise yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. yeah well, Matt's ahead of it's, himself. It's bloody good. rude. Oh god! Don't talk about ourselves. Don't talk about Matt's head. That's the real reason he doesn't want to be sitting <laughs> in the library with us when we're watching Zygon. <clears throat> Heads in the clouds, literally. Got to bend down when you get in. He's like the Mekon. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note.